I showed that this morning to my, to my wife, Tammy, and she goes, we well, don't have to preach. She says, play that, drop the mic, walk off. She's right. Well, obviously what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about the, the Battle of Jericho, and I probably won't be able to say it much better at all than what they did. Um, but in, in the midst of talking about this, uh, for the next few minutes, I'm going to pose three different questions to you, and, and here's the first one. What would you do right now if you knew you could not fail? You could not fail. Think about this for a second. What that means is that there's not going to be any danger, no chance of failure, no consequences, no fear of rejection, embarrassment, going to be in conflict over what you do. You can immediately do it and succeed at it. Let your mind go wild. Would you go for the adrenaline rush? Would you go skydiving? Would you go rock climbing? I do not like height. I mean, I really do not like height. I, I can't imagine why anybody would want to rock climb or to repel, anything like that. But I think if I knew that 100%, I think I could do skydiving, if I knew 100% that chute was definitely, definitely going to open and that I was going to land on like a billion Sealy posturpedic mattresses softly, and you know, I wouldn't be injured. I think I, I think I would do that. I also know that when this day is finished, someone's going to come up to me and go afterwards, go, Dan, Dan, you have to try skydiving. It's awesome. And I know you're right. It's probably awesome, and you're wrong. I don't have to, and I'm not going to. So maybe you'd bury the accelerator on a sports car on the interstate. I know we have former and current police officers in here. I'm not suggesting they do anything illegal, but again, it says no consequences. Everything will be fine. Maybe you would speak your mind to somebody. Something you've been wanting to tell somebody but just didn't quite have the courage to do it, you're going to speak your mind, and it would come out absolutely perfect. Maybe you try something you always wanted to do. Maybe you start a business. You could do a lot of different things. The adventure could be financial, emotional, spiritual. If you knew failure was off the plate, my goodness, what wouldn't you do, right? So that's the first question I pose. Here's the second one. And I guarantee you, as you hear them, you're going to think, well, that's the same question. It's just worded in a different way. But trust me, there's a big difference in this. Just to remind you, here was the first question. What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? But there's the second one. What would you do if you weren't? afraid. Do you pick up on the difference there? See, with the first one, again, you can't lose. Success is guaranteed. Victory certain. You can't seemingly do anything that would keep you from working. But that second one, there are a lot of strings attached to that. What would you do if you weren't afraid? That question leaves the door open for, for failure, for embarrassment, Rejection, derision, self-doubt, financial ruin, jeopardizing your career. Maybe you'd alienate family members and friends. Maybe you'd even question your own faith as a result if it doesn't succeed. The list goes on and on, and we face it every day. Right? There's something, I, it has to be for all of us, there's something every day that we tap the brakes on just a little bit. There's this little thing, this worry about the consequences there's like this tap on the shoulder that says, oh, 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 better not try that. I mean, what if you fail? 
Me? What would I do if I wasn't afraid? I don't like conflict. I, I, I don't. I'm not as afraid of it as I am of height, but I don't like conflict. And so I guess that if I was braver, I would be a little bit more straightforward in facing up to some of the conflict in my life. I'm also fairly risk-averse, so I might push myself out there a little bit more. There's always something else that we would do if we just weren't afraid. How about you? How many dreams hide behind the curtain of your uncertainty? Last week, Adam Johnson, who, by the way, it is his birthday, if you see him today, wish him happy birthday. Adam Johnson introduced us to Joshua and to the book of Joshua, and just to kind of remind you of what he told us, did a great job of really setting this up, and brings us to today. Just a little bit back history, if you weren't here, or just as a refresher, uh, the Israelites, the nation of Israel has escaped from Egypt. Uh, Moses has led them out. They have gone, uh, they've gone into the wilderness, and they've been there for 40 years. And by the way, if you look, if you see the map of what the wilderness was, it didn't take 40 years to cross it. They were there. They were, they were wandering about, if you will. It wasn't as if it was going to take them that long to get there. But because of unfaithfulness, even for some grumbling, they weren't allowed to move into the promised land. Moses was told, you're never going to move into the promised land. So when Joshua, look at Joshua starts, we know he's died. Moses is dead, and Joshua is the new leader, and he is a relatively inexperienced leader. And this land, Canaan, that they're entering into, which they've been told, that is the promised land for you, it's already occupied, and oh, by the way, the Canaanites are going to fight to the death because that's their land. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb, but I think probably, I imagine this is fact. At this point, point at any one of the Israelites and they're scared of something. They're scared of something. I'm guessing that every day they all heard that same little voice. There was a tap on the shoulder and said, you better not try that. I mean, what if you fail? Now, before we dive into the battle of Jericho, let me say this. None of this story is going to make any worldly sense. It it just doesn't. If your plan was to walk out here today and say, well, finally, now I know how God used some sort of ancient dance band and a few yodelers or something like that to destroy a fortified city. Sorry, not going to be able to help you out on that. I think you're going to be disappointed. The Bible's full of miracles. Obviously, we see one not long, 40 years back from this, when the Israelites escaped from Egypt. We see it constantly in the life of Jesus. Jesus heals a blind man, a leper, a paralytic. But with those miracles... And I can't really even describe it, but there always seems to be a correlation. There's a correlation between the method that God or Christ uses and and the results that they get. It's in the midst of most of those miracles, it didn't matter how miraculous were, the way they went about it seemed to be logical. This makes no sense. This is not logical in the battle of Jericho. Logic is out the window. So much so that I completely understand if in the midst of describing this today, that gets in your way of looking truly at what the message is about it, because it's outlandish. But I encourage you to remember this. The message is in the method. The message is in the method. Now, here's a spoiler alert. We're going to look at just a little bit of chapter 5 of Joshua, and then into 6, and just so you know, the walls are going to come down. But please don't leave yet, because this next part gets pretty juicy. At the end of chapter 5, there's a couple things that happen that are critical to know. 
about that battle of Jericho. At the end, Joshua meets an important person, and I, I, I suppose you could call him a person, uh, and we're going to meet that person in just a minute. But also, right before that, there's a meal of, uh, of Passover, so a, 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 you know, a, a day of remembrance for the Jewish uh, nation, and they're uh, gathering for a meal, and it says in Scripture that God throughout, while they have been wandering in the wilderness and, and even as they crossed over into, into, this, into Canaan, he had provided them with food. That food just showed up. It was called manna, and if you heard, the, you know, you all know the phrase, manna from heaven. That's where that comes from. The food was just there. After they eat this meal, Scripture makes it clear, they never, they're never going to see that again. That, that's not going to show up. So that means that any meal that they're going to have from that point on, they have to have either grown something, butchered something, raised something, or conquered something in order to get a meal. And I guarantee you the next morning, they're already starting to get hungry. Hunger is a great motivator for a nation. Now, he meets this person, Joshua meets this person, if you will, out on the plains of Jericho. And he's out on the plains of Jericho probably because he, is, he knows Jericho is the first city they've got to take in, uh, in order to begin to advance and, and claim this land. And he's there and he's scouting, he's probably looking at, at the city. And out of nowhere, this is what it says, this is starting with 5.13. When Joshua was near the town of Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a sword in hand. We get the sense, too, that this person just all of a sudden was there. It wasn't as if you saw him walking at a distance. Joshua must have turned, and all of a sudden he was there, sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and demanded, Are you friend or foe? Neither one, he replied. That is not the answer that Joshua wanted to hear. But it was absolutely the answer he needed to hear. Let's go back to the original two questions. Look, Joshua just says, as human as you and as me, he's flawed and he's scared. He's an inexperienced leader and he's about to go into multiple battles and he doesn't have any of the normal tools to fight that. He doesn't have siege weapons. He doesn't have battering rams. He doesn't have catapults. And he also has an army that knows nothing about battle. He had to be hoping that that figure would say to them then, look, no sweat, I'm on your side. That would have been the same as hearing, I guarantee you, you cannot lose. But that was part of Israel's problem. They wanted God on their side so they could do all the things they had always wanted to do. They wanted to prosper. They wanted to live without fear. They wanted to rule over this land. They wanted to win. It's hard to argue with that list, right? But that's not what God brought them there to do. God wanted the people of Israel to be faithful, to trust that he knew what was best for them and that he was going to use them in ways that they could not even possibly comprehend. That centuries later, he was going to use this, this land to bring forth a Savior in Christ into the midst of their ancestors. I think we can relate, can't we? I mean, we know in our hearts this is all about serving God. That's why you're here today. We talk about this every week, yet in our heart of hearts, you know what we'd really appreciate is if God just kind of paved all the roads ahead for us. We'd really like to avoid the tough stuff. This is what the person said next that changed everything for Joshua, though. He said, remember, Joshua asked him, who are you? And he goes, I am the commander of the Lord's army. Now, the passage goes on to say that Joshua fell down on his face in the ground in reverence. He goes, I'm your servant. What do you want me to do? 
Now that's important because that means Joshua got it. He got it. In that moment, he recognized, oh, wait, wait, this is not all about me. This is not about all of us. It's about God. Whatever happens next, it's about him. It's about fulfilling what he wants. What Joshua may have wanted was, was God's allegiance, right? Just to know that God was on his side to help his cause, help him win the battle. But what God was saying is, I lay claim to you, Joshua, and that I'm going to use you, not for your purpose, but for my purpose. Are the Israelites always going to remember this? Nope, they're definitely not going to. But in this moment, Joshua seems completely ready to serve God. doesn't matter what the outcome. Now he's got to convince everybody else. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that one, right? Which is why God may have chose the most absurd, lame battle plan in the history of battle plans. It's as if God is saying, okay, so you say that you're with me. All right, well, then let me tell you how we're going to defeat Jericho. So let's pick this up in Joshua, the sixth chapter, and this beginning with the with sixth verse. This is what it says. Now, the gates of Jericho were tightly shut because the people were afraid of the Israelites. They don't know how, they don't know how strong this army is. These people have just shown up. This also lets us know that Jericho is secure enough that it can keep everybody out and it keeps everybody, everybody in. So we've got to think that this thing was, was pretty tight. They were afraid of the Israelites. No one was allowed to go in or out. But the Lord said to Joshua, I have given, and what, look at that word, given you Jericho, its king and all, uh, all its strong warriors. What he's saying is in past tense. He's not saying, I'm going to give you. He's saying, I have given you. Done deal. It's going to happen. Which is why, then, especially too, it's like, okay, given this plan and you're, guarantee, you're guaranteeing it, Note that God uses that past tense, but then Joshua's got to go and tell these people, and he gathers together these, the, the seven priests first, and gives each one of them a ransom. Here's your ransom. Here's your ransom. Here's your ransom. Here. All right. Here's the plan. And then he told them the plan. All right. You guys are going to march around this city, and when we get to seven days, we're going to march around it seven times. You're going to blow the horns, and then everybody's going to shout, and the walls are going to go down. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that a great plan? And they must have looked around and go, Anybody else want to be a leader? Anybody else voting? Only requirements are you're not an idiot, you're not mentally ill, like Joshua is. And then he has to go, and, and Scripture tells us, then he's got to, uh, he, he has to also convince all of the people of this same thing. He's got to go and tell his, tell his army. He says, tells them that, and he says, we're going to start doing this the next day. So they're going to be, I don't know, who knows how many people they were, who knows how far away they were from the wall, but you kind of get a sense that they, they must have been a pretty, fairly well close, and there would have been uh, the, the priests in the middle, there would have been this army of people on, uh, marching in front of them or back of them, and they begin to march around this. But Jesus or, or um, Joshua also tells them this. He says, look, as you're marching, don't say a word. Don't shout. Don't even talk. Just march. In fact, it doesn't even say that in those first six days that they even blew their horns. And I can't imagine, you know, there's soldiers up on this wall. You've got to assume there are. The Canaanites are up on this wall, and they're looking down, and nobody, they're marching, but they're not saying a thing. I got this image of this one guy, you know, looking up there and going, what do you think's going on? And his buddy going, I think it's an army of mimes. I, I, yeah, I, they're all quiet. I think they're mimes. I don't know why they showed up here for whatever reason, 
fire an arrow down in there. Let's see if they can make one of those imaginable boxes and, and, and block that arrow. Look, it doesn't make any sense, right? And they did that on the first day, and they said, are oh, you just going to march around, and then we're all going to leave, going to go to camp. Awesome plan. Next day, did it again, 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 six times. Then they get to the, next, the last day. Here's what it says, picking up in verse 15. On the seventh day, the Israelites got up at dawn and marched into the town as they had done before. But this time, they went around the town seven times. The seventh time around, as the priest sounded the long blast on their horns, Joshua commanded the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the town. And when the people heard the sound of the ram's horns, they shouted as loud as they could. Suddenly, the walls of Jericho collapsed, and the Israelites charged straight into town and captured it. But you know what? I bet the moment was still lost on some of them. Not everyone got it. In fact, we, we know they didn't all get it because all we have to do is read about it in chapter 7, and, and, and I'd encourage you to do that. Read 5, 6, and 7 at least together, and you'll notice that there are consequences to some of them not doing what they're supposed to do once they get into the city. They don't follow Joshua's instructions. But I'm sure that for some of them, they fully recognize in that moment God's hand in this victory. It's all for what exactly was God's victory. How else could such a crazy plan work? Why would it work? Well, the why must be in God wanting to show to Israel, place your faith in only one place. You place it in me and you place it in me alone. Here's the third question. What's your personal Jericho? What battle is in front of you that is so fearsome, so frightening, you do almost anything for an ironclad, lock-it-up guarantee of victory. We already know that there are no ironclad guarantees, right? There's always risk. There's always risk. Being on this planet, being us, where we are, there's always risk. Absolutely. In our plans, but not in God's plans. Paul reminds us of that in the New Testament when he says, and this is from his, his second letter that he wrote to Timothy, for God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. He's saying whatever stands in your way that seems too frightening is not too big to tackle with God. But if you're afraid to tackle it alone, there are some things to remember about your personal Jericho. Here are three. First one is, obedience to God matters. Obedience to God matters. So let's don't wait for the battle to start before turning to God. Remember I was when you were a kid and, and it was a couple getting a couple of weeks away from Christmas and you decided, you know, I probably ought to get my act together and behave. You know, we're getting pretty close here. And you're kind of hoping that your parents and Santa Claus would have short memories and forget what happened the other 50 weeks out of the year. Well, God's memories just a little bit better, but that's not really the point of this. Obedience is like physical training, if you will. The more we commit to it, the stronger we'll be when it's game time. But more than that, obedience draws us near to God. We know that in Scripture too. It even says, draw close to me and I'll draw close to you. We're more likely to see how God, see how God views our challenges and we're more likely to follow His plan when we're practicing it before that moment of crisis occurs. 
So let's don't wait for the battle. Here's number two. God's stronger than our walls. Stop imagining taller walls and start praying, Lord, how are we going to knock this one down? I recognize sometimes there's no good answer to our problems, is there? Even when we are most faithful, even when we see, we know that God walks with us, if we're really honest, some problems just don't always lead to the happy ending we were hoping for. So I, I don't want in any way for this message to come across as, oh, hey, look, all you got to do is just follow God. Everything's going to work out, going to work out fine. It may not work out fine. Ask an entire nation right now in Eastern Europe, hey, is this going to work out okay? But that doesn't mean that God doesn't use our situations to do mighty things. And we may not know the outcome for a very, very long time. There are certain things that you have already done for people that you will never know your impact upon them. And if you do know it, it might not be for years and years. Our oldest son is named Joshua, as it, uh, as it might be. And, and when he finished college, he spent a couple years as a teacher's assistant. About 15 years ago, he was a teacher's assistant at Northside Middle School here, where my, where my wife teaches. Um, and, and what I do for a living uh, full-time is, is I... I do leadership training. So I'm working with different companies, and so I'm in different places, and, and typically they're leaders or managers that are in my classes. And my wife and I, we have, a, we have something that we do, because, well, again, she's taught here 42 years. How many people have my wife as a teacher? Yeah, yeah, and there's probably, if you go out in there, there's a whole bunch more. So I always ask that question, if you had my wife as a teacher, and then what I, what I do is, is I say, well, what year did you, would you have been there? And so my wife has all of her yearbooks, so I will say, hey, look at this guy, 1982, she'll send me a picture, I'll put it up on the wall, we got a funny moment. Usually it's a funny moment, sometimes it's not that funny to them. But uh, anyway, um, so I, I had one of those, a guy in class, and there was another guy, though, that he was said, I went to Northside, but I didn't have your wife, I had somebody else, but... What was your son's name? Your son was there at the time. And I say, yeah, it was Joshua. He was, a, he was a teacher's assistant. He was also a track coach. He goes, yeah, he was my track coach. And this guy had already told us he had had some rough spots in his life. Um, but here he was now. He was in a management position. People really respected him. They told me that. He was doing really great. But he said to me, he goes, you know what? He goes, your son was the first person who ever convinced me that I should believe in me, and that I could do more than what I thought I could do. And he goes, some bumps along the road, but he goes, I really think I'm here because, in part because of your son. Tell you what, as soon as I had a second, I pulled this out and go, Josh, you got to hear this. What a great message to share. And Josh may not have ever, ever known that, but see, that's the point. God sometimes uses us in such small ways that with powerful impact that in the moment, that doesn't seem what the goal even was. Sometimes all it takes is someone to believe in us, and God believes in us and knows how to bring down your walls. So just ask him, Lord, how are we going to knock down this one? Here's the last point. The battle's not ours. The battle is the Lord's. All the problems that you've tried to tackle on your own, and I'm sure there have been many. In Dr. Phil's words, how's that working out for you? It's never worked out very well for me, and yet 
I still try all the time to do it on my own. But when I choose to go it alone and leave God sitting on the sidelines, not only do I tend to fail, I find out that I'm chasing an outcome that was the wrong outcome to begin with. My perspective is always just about here, out here at arm's length. I'm looking for the short-term solution. What's going to relieve my anxiety? What's going to slap a Band-Aid on something that God realized that's the symptom, that's the problem, you need surgery for that. But that's what I'm always trying to do. See, God, though, He sees my whole future. And He's not only looking further out, He's looking to the sides. He's looking behind me. He sees everybody that is influenced by that. He recognizes the impact of my actions upon others and plots a path for me where others also learn to rely on His power. Man, we have to stop making battle plans on our own. God already knows what victory looks like. I would ask today that you keep the people of Ukraine in your prayers. And I know we are. We're all doing that. And we're that, that terrible tragedy. And I think about the people who are the, the soldiers and civilians who are staying behind to, to fight, and probably a whole lot of soldiers on the other side that are like, what in the world are we doing? Aren't we doing here? And it looks impossible. And I don't know what victory is going to look like. But I do know God's there. I know God's there. And I know that there's the opportunity in the midst of all of that pain and all that anguish to still know what that victory looks like. And you know what? I bet the more impossible it seems, that whatever it is, the greater the victory is going to be. Let's pray. Father, I lift up the people of Ukraine first and foremost. I lift up the people of Russia, though, as well, because I'm... Yeah, it's a political statement, Father, but I have to believe they don't believe necessarily as their leader does. But, but I pray for them. But, Father, I also pray for people who are facing other impossible situations throughout the world, and that there's already a lot of pain going on. And, and quite honestly, I realize sometimes, maybe right now, that the reason that Ukraine is especially in our focus not only just because it just started, but also sometimes they look more like us. And so, Father, sometimes in just our sin, we have to realize, you know, the people in the rest of the world that are facing that sort of oppression and all, they need our prayers daily too. So, so we keep them in mind, even if they're just not our ancestors necessarily. Father, I lift them up, but I also lift up all these people, and I know that we have walls of Jericho around us, and we're looking up and going, how in the world do I do this? But, Father, it's your battle. We know that. So give us that obedience that it takes to make sure that when the battle comes, we see it for what it really is. It's not about our comfort. It's not about our satisfaction. It is about you. And it is about your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.